What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. A story so big, Andrew Ross Sorkin dialed in from vacation. Disney getting a win from one of its smaller shareholders to ward off the billionaire activist stakeholder Nelson Peltz. This is an early win, again, symbolic more than anything else. And the other big one today, Harvard President Claudine Gay resigning from her post amid plagiarism allegations and pressure from university donors. It was really taking that Wall Street playbook rather than saying, I don't like this company, I'm not going to invest in it. It's saying, I'm going to give them money and I'm going to exercise my control and my vision. Digging into that shareholder perspective with crisis expert Eric Desenhall. I don't think what you're hearing now is how do we further rule the world? I think it's why haven't we been doing something like this sooner? Plus viral fame from Christmas jammies. We had no idea that people made money doing this. Kim and Penn Holderness on their influencer income. You can't just make one video and then bask in your success. You have to do it over and over and over again, and not all of them are going to be big hits. It's Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Mike Santoli and Robert Frank. Joe and Andrew are off today. Um, you guys have been putting in long hours. Mike, I was listening to you on Closing Bell last night. Yeah. A little bit of a, you know, it's a marathon, but uh, that's why you keep the pace slow. And you were on last call last night, so we've got some (laughs) long working fellows here. And we've got some breaking news on an activist investor in Disney this morning. Our very own Andrew Ross Sorkin joins us right now on the Squawk Newsline. And Andrew, nothing's going to stop you from breaking this news. Tell me about it. What's happening? Hey, Becky. Uh, An early win for Disney this morning, uh, getting the backing of Value Act. Um, the hedge fund and activist investor uh, that has been in this uh, fight that's been taking place uh, brought by Nelson Peltz, of course, uh, against Disney. Uh, Disney saying that Value Act plans to support uh, Disney and the current management, Bob Iger and such, uh, in uh, its proxy fight. Uh, it's an early win in what is likely to be a long contest uh, over the next several months. Of course, Nelson Peltz uh, trying to get himself and Jay Rusulo uh, on the board uh, of Disney, uh, collectively with Ike Perlmutter, who, of course, uh, formerly owned Marvel, which was later sold to Disney. Uh, they control something like 32 million shares. Now, that's still a small number of shares in total, that's 2% of the outstanding, and in truth, uh, the number of shares that Value Act had at stake, or still has at stake, is only about 5 million. But from a signaling perspective, in terms of where this is all going to go, and uh, knowing that Disney has the support of a, a very uh, early and smart investor that, that is a big investor uh, in the world, this is going to give them a lot of support when it comes to some of the other big institutional investors. Uh, of course, Disney uh, adding two new board members quite recently, James Gorman and Jeremy Derrick, uh, formerly of the BBC. So uh, we'll see how this plays out. But uh, starting the new year off uh, with a little bit of a bang in the Disney war, if you will, to uh, 
to quote or to use James Stewart's title of his old book. Yeah, this is a big deal, Andrew. And as you mentioned, it's it's important for Disney to get this backing. Um, last time around, when Peltz came with this he, this move to kind of change the board, shake things up, he walked away himself. He announced it on Squawk on the Street and said that he was uh, walking away from that proxy battle because Bob Iger was returning and he had faith in him. Since then, his complaint has been primarily that Disney's down $70 billion or something in market cap on this. Um, he hasn't really laid out his plans as to what he would do differently. And I guess that's a big part of the question, too. The, the problems that Disney is facing is, are, are problems that the, the media landscape writ large are kind of facing, too. I think we should be expecting to see a white paper from Nelson Peltz uh, in the next month, if not uh, sooner. Uh, historically, they have put together these white papers to try to explain uh, to uh, the public and to shareholders what they think uh, they plan to do. But ha as you just said, um, these answers in the media landscape right now are not obvious at all. And so uh, what he would say uh, relative to what the options currently uh, or could be uh, would be a surprise if there was something uh, really shocking uh, out there about about what they might do. But uh, again, I, I think uh, you just said this this is a, this is an early win. Again, symbolic more than anything else. And in truth, the other thing that's worth noting is Value Act has always tried to be a friend uh, of management. It's made its way on a number of boards, but historically has tried to do that without proxy battles. And Andrew, uh, it's Mike. And in, in the company's announcement of this agreement, uh, they pointedly do say the Value Act uh, has extensive experience investing in media and technology companies, navigating significant business transformations. They named Spotify, New York Times Company, 21st Century Fox, Nintendo, Microsoft, Adobe, and Salesforce, which clearly is, is meant also to highlight what Disney has said about Nelson Peltz, which is that he doesn't have any particular understanding of the media industry based on his, uh, his track record. Well, look, I think, uh, you know, Nelson Peltz's track record uh, when it comes in particular uh, to, to media and the like uh, has been pointed out as, as it's unclear what it is that he is specifically bringing to this uh, per se. Obviously, Ike Perlmutter has been, uh, you know, inside of Disney for quite a long time. Uh, part of his practice the former CFO of Disney. Uh, so they're trying to build uh, their side of, of the battle, uh, if you will. But I think as everybody in the media landscape agrees right now, there, there's no obvious answers. If they were obvious, I think they probably would have been pursued. Uh, this is a, a business in transition uh, and a challenging transition at that. Yeah, I, I mean, we will continue to watch this and, and see how it plays out. But obviously, this is going to be a battle that people are watching very closely. Uh, Andrew, bringing us this news, by the way. From a well-deserved vacation, Andrew, we miss you, but we are glad to hear from you and uh, glad to see that you are keeping track no matter where you are in the world. Always on the phone, and I will see you guys all next week. Okay. Andrew, thank you. Look forward to seeing you back here again, but enjoy the rest of that well-deserved vacation. We'll see you soon. In the press release, Value Act's co-CEO and CIO Mason Morfitt says... We could not be more excited to partner with Bob and the board to help create long-term sustainable shareholder value. Mike, as you pointed out, um, they go on to talk about ValueX experience with a lot of investments they've had in media and technology. Um, and I think you were right to say that this is kind of um, setting it up against Nelson Peltz, who has much more experience when it comes to consumer products. Uh -huh. And Disney's actually been clear about that in the past in yeah. sort of opposing Peltz's 
um, slate or candidacy for the board, essentially saying, you know, we don't really hear anything specific to our business that we feel as if uh, we should necessarily be listening to in an official way. It'll also be interesting, James Gorman starts on the board, right? And so all that Morgan Stanley experience, the experience of sort of how the street is thinking, how to communicate to the street, I'm sure, you know, that's going to be an important yeah. part of his campaign against Pelts is to really understand and relate to, Bob's been very good at that over his career, but having Gorman on board will really help that as well. And we pointed out before, this is Pelts' second run at Disney. The first time he called it off and said, never mind, I'm happy. <laughs> on he, CNBC. He announced that on CNBC. To Jim on Kramer. On the yeah. street with, with Kramer. Yeah. He said, I'm calling it off right now because he was happy about Bob Iger's return. That's right. Since then, the stock's down $70 billion. Seen a big tumble, but so have so many of the traditional media companies. That's right. It's more of a yeah. read on, you know, exactly what cards do you have to play. And right. arguably, and UBS is actually out today with a, a note saying, we love Netflix, but among the rest, Disney actually has really the best opportunity in terms of you know the, the multiple streaming platforms obviously the theme parks the franchises things that you know uh, the, the exposure linear is is not great but it's less than some of the companies like right. Warner Brothers and when they have Hulu they can really start this mega bundle yeah, exactly Big news yesterday, Harvard University President Claudine Gay re resigned yesterday amid new allegations of plagiarism she held the top post at Harvard for just 6 months and on Monday, the Washington Free Beacon reported that a new complaint had been filed with the university accusing Gay of six additional instances of plagiarism. That included a 2001 article in which she allegedly lifted four sentences from a University of Wisconsin poli-sci professor without quotation marks. Her, re her resignation follows a widely criticized performance in Congress last month during that hearing on anti-Semitism on college campuses. And guys, this is been huge, you know, top of the fold for all the newspapers today. A lot of discussion about what kind of precedent this will set for the involvement of wealthy donors. There's a congressional investigation underway for college campuses. Um, this is not the end of this story. Obviously, these plagiarism allegations were untenable for the university, especially after more of them came out Monday. But I think this is part of this broader cultural war. It's a political story. It's a business story. It's a cultural story. And uh, it's one that's, that's really just starting, I think, given the whole clash between the culture of campuses today and many of the donors and the outside business world, especially. Yeah, I, I, look, I think this is a situation where there was so much pressure brought to bear. The performance of these three university um, presidents in front of Congress was uh, pretty dismal, and I think a lot of people looked at that and said, no way. They listened to lawyers. They said what the lawyers said instead of reacting in a human way and listening to try and quell the situation that had been building uh, on these university campuses. The pressure that came not only from the media and, and in certain areas of the media that came from this, Bill Ackman brought, brought this to bear on, on X. And then I think you saw the fallout. And I think what, what happened yesterday was a result of that fallout. You look at admissions, uh, the number of people trying to apply to these universities dropped dramatically at Harvard. You look at donors, the donors that are sending the money in dropped dramatically, uh, which was a huge push because that's one of the main jobs of a university president at this point. And the third thing is Harvard MBA grads. I don't know if you saw that, but something there was a 10 percentage points drop since 2021 in the job offers for Harvard MBAs. It was only 86 percent of Harvard Business School grads from this this year's class seeking jobs who had been offered jobs at this point down 
11 percentage points, yeah. which is or 10 percentage points, which is pretty right. phenomenal. Some of that may that's be the macro the, environment. It, uh, it, the job, the job market but is I think not you exactly. You also had uh, people who were saying, "We're not going to take anybody from here until you actually change the university," and that was a very pointed campaign. And that's the entire flywheel that these universities and their reputations are built on. You don't pay that kind of money if you don't feel like you're getting something for it. That's right. Yeah, I mean, fair game, but I, I just struggle to see any heroes on any side of this, to be honest with you, because this is something you can point out the performance. You could you could deplore the statements in Congress, which was a stunt was, of a it hearing. Was, it, it was a stunt of a hearing. It was, it was a, a trap of a, a question. It, it, but they they and didn't pass the trap. They and didn't pass the trap. It was Stefanik who proposed the question to course, a Harvard yeah. graduate. And yeah. then you go hunting through someone's entire life to say to, to expose some hypocrisy about the fact that they yeah. seem to have a, a you know. Uh, committed plagiarism in the past, which is fine. Right. But, you know, these wealthy donors are used to basically having their wealth treated as virtue, and they are kind of using these universities and donations to bolster and launder the reputations that they've made this money on Wall Street. It's all fair game, but it's also unseemly, I think, on every side. Look, I, I, I think seeing some of the practices come after it, yeah, nobody looks at this yeah. and thinks, can you withstand the pressure from this? But I also think if you look at what's happened on university campuses, the hypocrisy that they were showing themselves, you didn't have to go right. digging deep to see any of this hypocrisy. No, you also don't have to go far to see hypocrisy of people who've been extolling unfettered free speech for a year. <laughs> And then they're saying we have to clamp down on speech on campuses. Right. right. Yeah. So well, it, both sides were on the opposite. Exactly. Of both exactly. of these sides got flipped it's totally on It's totally symmetrical. Yeah. It, 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 it has been something to watch. But I do think that it, it was hard to defend her once you started seeing the plagiarism that came up. Totally. Because, again, if you were a student and you had that kind of plagiarism, no there would be no second chances. There would be no third chances on these issues. Agreed. Yes. So it's, the, it's a Harvard business case of how okay, not so, to handle a crisis, exactly. <laughs> whether they look at the Harvard Corporation and first yes. coming out to the New York Post saying absolutely there are no uh, there's no basis to this allegation of plagiarism. And then coming back and saying, well, we investigated, there's no basis for it. And it just gradually, yeah. you know, they, they really just didn't do a great job in the process of handling a crisis. But I will also say, if you're a Jewish student on campus, on a lot of these campuses, you have not felt safe. For sure. And, and that is an yeah. unbelievable turn of events for, for what's happened since October 7th. Absolutely. So okay. I, I, I think you're right. There's hypocrisy on both sides of this. And everybody flipped the switch in right. terms of what they were saying on both sides. And I. I don't condone a lot of the tactics. Yeah. And, and that, also, you know, for our audience, it's important to note this was a classic activist campaign. Right. right? Yeah. You know, Bill Ackman using the power of his money, using the power of the press, using the power of his connections in Washington, D.C. And, and to X, basically. He didn't, he didn't use the press as much as he used his own, being on the, Twitter. His own platform. Yeah, that's he's got that's a lot right. Of that's right. But the classic thing you write letters, you send well, open you it, surface it's, it's research, which yeah, is what happened. Absolutely. Here. But, I mean, but it, it was really taking that Wall Street playbook of, of rather than saying, I don't like this company, I'm not going to invest in it, I don't like this university, I'm not going to give them money, it's saying, I, I'm going to give them money and I'm going to exercise my control right. and my vision of what this company or university should be. And that's what generationally has changed about university donors. We'll talk more about that uh, later yeah. in the show, but but that's really this this whole playbook being applied to higher education is going to be fascinating. Although I, I will say, when you look at higher education and some of the things coming out of it, I've been shocked too. Like you got to be kidding! I did not realize some of the things that were Me happening neither. on campuses. I, I mean, you look at the the ratio of Republican versus Democrat professors at Harvard. It's over eighty percent Democrat. Less than one percent of faculty identify as conservative. That's not Quick representing. Think is never a good idea. That's not representing the world in which these students are going to come out into the job market. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we complain about 
the siloed effect of getting to choose your own media, your own social media, yeah. only listening to people you want to hear. Sure. It was the same well, thing that was happening. It's self-selecting all the way out. Yeah. I mean, it that's right. the thing. Yeah. It's not like it's some conspiracy. No. Right. Cheese will be next. Up next, who do Harvard University donors think they are? There's been this implied agreement for over 100 years where wealthy donors say, look, I'm going to give you the university money so that my less than academically stellar grandkids can get into your, your university. Crisis management guru Eric Desenhall joins us on the Harvard president's departure and on the university's shareholder value. What you've been hearing in recent weeks is, my God, we've been funding people who want to kill us. Squawk Pod will be right back. Hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. Here's CNBC's Robert Frank. Harvard President Claudine Gay resigning yesterday after testimony backlash and plagiarism accusations. Joining us now to talk about what role donors play in the latest campus controversies. Eric Desenhall is chairman of Desenhall Resources. Eric, thanks so much for joining us. Obviously, the plagiarism charges, which just kept multiplying and coming out, were untenable. The congressional testimony uh, was unacceptable to many. But I, I do think this really is speaking and perhaps sparking a larger debate about the role of donors, given um, all of the major donors that had led up to this, refusing to give more money to Harvard. This also started at UPenn, where their president resigning. I just want to start by reading a quote from Scott Bach. He's the former chair of board of trustees at UPenn. CEO of Greenhill, very well-respected banker on Wall Street, saying, quote, universities need to be very careful of the influence of money, especially one like Penn, which has a business school with a brand larger than that of the university itself. Donors should not be able to decide campus policies or determine what is taught. Do you think that there's a risk here of donors feeling like they're emboldened to, to play more of a role, not just Obviously, this plagiarism accusation and one thing, but in, in what universities do and in academic freedom? Well, I think that there's a couple things at work here. First of all, uh, active alumni is not exactly <clears throat> a new issue. Uh, I think that what we have that is new here is, to quote a certain movie, a particular set of skills. You have uh, alumni who are specializing in proxy fights. Uh, for for a living. This is a very specific area of endeavor. Uh, Having dealt with people of this cohort, they are among the sharpest people you would ever encounter. They know how to work with the news media. They know how uh, to mobilize third parties. And I think that this is what you see happening here. What's interesting is if you talk to some of the people interested in this area, 
they don't feel like they are masters of the universe pulling strings. The way they feel is that they have been asleep at the switch for 40 years, allowing a certain movement, the DEI movement, to to get deeper into campus culture than they ever imagined. And a lot of the conversations they're having is, what have we been funding for 40 years? Even if we personally weren't funding it, we're now responsible for it. So I don't think what you're what you're hearing now is how do we further rule the world? I think it's why haven't we been doing something like this sooner? The other thing to keep in mind is one of the more important catalysts in the Harvard situation was a student, was a student uh, who I believe was anonymous, who came forward and said, how can you hold us to certain standards if there are several dozen plagiarism allegations against the president of the university. And so it really was a student that tipped the scales uh, in the 11th hour. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been this implied agreement for over 100 years where wealthy donors say, look, I'm going to give you the university money so that my less than academically stellar grandkids can get into your, your university. And by the way, I get a tax write off and I'll basically stay out of your hair. I mean, there have been a couple instances where they tried to interfere and they were they were told no and they got their money back. But to your point is perhaps are the donors the only ones who were brave enough, strong enough able to stand up to these universities and so therefore will they be an important corrective to you know I, I my eyes have been open to some of the um, you know disparities on universities where 90 80 percent of faculty are Democrats versus Republican at Harvard I think only one percent identified as conservative um, will they play an important role in what some see as correcting university life and culture right now they are. Look, uh, October 7th and the subsequent hearings with the university presidents were uh, you were waking up sleeping lions. Uh, I think that you have you have people who didn't really understand what they had been funding. And you as a chronicler of the wealthy understand that a lot of what you have here is wealthy donors who feel that they are being magnanimous. They want to show the kind of money they have. They want to give back to the universities, but they're not necessarily involved in the granular details. And what you've been hearing in recent weeks is, my God, we've been funding people who want to kill us. And that comes from people who are capitalists. It comes from the Jewish community, uh, where you have seen situations on campus where people have lost their jobs and gotten in trouble for very vague kind of um, uh, venial sins. But when asked about what is happening, whether supporting genocide is a violation of campus free speech, it's, well, let's wait and see. You're seeing the same thing with feminist groups who said all lives matter, but now some of them are saying all lives matter, but not so much the women who were mass raped on October 7th. And very quickly, you know, Bill Ackman tweeted yesterday, A2 Sally referring to the president of MIT. Do you think she's going to stay? Well, I, I don't know the internal dynamics, but certainly they're drawing a bead on people who are considered violators in this DEI area. And make no mistake, that is what this is really about. It is not just about free speech. Eric Desenhall, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Thank you. 
Coming up on Squawk Pod, the Holderness family's fun videos and song parodies dominate a certain corner of the internet, and it's actually a pretty big business. The husband and wife duo who first went viral 10 years ago with a goofy video about their Christmas jammies. Do you guys miss the news business? No. <laughs> Plus, beware of Mickey Mouse, a new era for a favorite character right after this. that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. Dancing in the front yard night and day And the neighbors walk by and this is what they say Are these Christmas jammies? They are Christmas jammies. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. The Holderness family, the Holder Nye, if you will, went viral for that video in 2013 when the economy of creators on YouTube and social media was just beginning. Now, 10 years later, the family is part of a rapidly growing creator economy expected to reach $480 billion in the next few years. That's nearly half a trillion dollars by 2027. Here's Becky Quick, joined today by Robert Frank and Michael Santoli. Our next guests have accumulated over 300 million views on YouTube posting music videos, sketches, and by the way, they won the Amazing Race too, so you might recognize them from that. The Holderness family has accumulated millions of followers across multiple platforms over the last 10 years when they first realized that they could turn their online videos into full-time jobs. Joining us right now to talk about the creator economy is Kim and Penn Holderness from the Holderness family. And wow, this is like meeting celebrities having you guys on today. Thank you for joining us. Thanks uh, for having right us. back at you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, I mean, we, we were watching even more of your stuff in the breaks leading up to this, but we've all been talking on set about what it is you guys do. And I think it's because you're normal people, but funnier and more fun than we are, that we connect with all of you. Um, I, I know it's been a long time, I think about 10 years since Christmas Jammies first came out. And I can't believe you guys have been doing this and, and for, for such a long time. I think the key is figuring out what you do and then pivoting along the way. But maybe you guys can tell us just a little bit about how you first figured out that this was a viable job option. Uh, first of all, we're very slow learners. We didn't know it was a viable job option. <laughs> we posted that video as he was leaving his job in the news business to announce the uh, a marketing company we were starting. We had no idea that people made money doing this. So it actually took us several years after that first video for us to realize, oh, People pay, you can earn, you know, off of ad revenue, all of those things. We didn't even understand how the platform works. So yeah. it took us a while. There was not a uh, manual of any sort. Uh, there were other people who were doing it, but a lot of times they were in other states or other countries. Uh, the one thing that we did figure out um, quickly enough to turn this into a business was that you can't just make one video and then bask in your success. There, there has to be uh, some volume. You have to do it over and over and over again, and not all of them are going to be big hits but there has to be some consistency in the digital platforms. That's kind of a lot of pressure. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I think uh, our, our sort of goal has already always been do the videos that make us laugh. Mm. And so it removes the pressure because not all of them are amazing. Not all of them go viral. But if we like the video and we post the video, 
um, and it doesn't do well, doesn't matter. I mean, it, it removes the pressure. Yes, and. Uh, yes, and you wake up every morning and you think, what am I going to do today? Even if yesterday was a great day, you know, you've got to keep going. Yeah, we have a shoot day today. We're supposed to shoot today. We don't really know what we're going to shoot today. That's right. But we're going to come up with something and you'll see it later this week. <laughs> That's great. Um, uh, one of the things I think you all have done that has been so impressive is you have continued to pivot because the way you make money on these platforms and the platforms themselves keep changing. You want to talk a little bit about your journey, because I think a lot of people don't understand. Um, I, I think a lot of us feel like you guys did 10 years ago when you were starting out on this, right. not quite understanding how things work. We're still learning. Um, when we started, our first video went on YouTube. We shared it on Facebook. That was the simple formula. Um, then Facebook started offering native videos. Then Instagram started offering native videos. There's all these platforms that um, often will offer things and incentivize creators and amplify your your videos and so you've got to know where that wave is being ridden to mm -hmm. if that makes sense i think our superpower is being able to pivot you know we not everything has been profitable not everything has worked out um, but we have a very short memory with those things and we just keep going um, so I think that has been our superpower. But yeah, in, in the beginning, long form videos on YouTube were really being rewarded. Mm -hmm. Now it's, you know, short form on TikTok and Instagram. That's what, you know, brands and, you know, it used to be shot horizontally. Now everything's shot vertically. So yeah. we, we have teenagers in our house and we're just sort of watching and observing what they're doing a lot of times <laughs> um, and where we enjoy being, like where we enjoy hanging out online. I'm, I, I'm loving Instagram Reels and TikTok right now. That's where I'm, I'm watching a lot of content. So we're creating more content for those platforms. And Kim, to that point, you know, there, there's there's so many different platforms that you're on. I'm curious, which are, which are the most profitable and which get you the most likes or views and are those different? Yes, it varies. It varies. So I think yeah. that profitable. So there's different ways to make money. We joke um, that we wanted like seven revenue streams, seven profitable revenue streams. So we wanted to be on many platforms doing many different things at, at once. So where Facebook is where actually our biggest audience is and, and we will make money there um, for ad revenue. So if you see an ad pop up, we do an ad share um, with with whatever Facebook makes. But if you look at Instagram, statistically, we have a smaller audience there. We have a million something followers there. But brands, we have brand engagement. So brands we love and adore, we will work with them. So technically, that's more profitable on the brand side. But we don't make hardly any money there on ad shares and ad revenue. Is, is it safe to say that this is a, a really profitable line of work for you guys at this point? It, it's it's very scary sometimes. <laughs> there there have been yeah. lean years, but then there I have to say the pandemic with, when everybody was home and had nothing to do but watch online videos that worked out for us. But we're not idiots. We say we squirreled away money, but yeah, and we were paying the mortgage, and we have three full time employees, and we offer benefits and four hundred one ks, and so knock on wood, it's going well. Do you guys miss the news business? No, no. no. I, I mean, great. great. You guys are very important. You're doing more important things than us. You're talking to the president of Harvard in a couple of minutes. No, like I, we, I think they're talking about Are you talking about the president of Harvard? You guys. Your yeah. hair is so, amazing. Sure, Look yeah. at that hair. Hurricanes and elections, I miss those. Like, yeah. those were fun to go and cover and deal with. But 
Um, you guys are very impressive. Yeah, you guys are so I don't even think she saw my hair before she. Did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I do think I, one of the most touching things I saw was when your daughter said that she was so happy that you all had done this. I think it, it was maybe ten years later in the in the 2023 Christmas Jammies one, where she said, "Because you were home, Pen, you you weren't gone all the time like you were when you were in the news business," and she was grateful that she got to grow up with you being involved. Yeah, it, it was very sweet. Um, I, the reason we started this job and the reason we made that first video, the Christmas Jammies video, was because my kids were at the age now, my daughter, that she was going to school. And when you work in news, you either work from three to 12 or you work from three to 12. And um, both, right. of those, both of those are pretty tough when you have a kid who's at school. And, um, you know, like we, we went down this journey and it's been successful for the most part. There've been some tough times. We've, we've had days when we woke up wondering what we were going to do, but the one thing that we knew was we were going to see our family more. Uh, and so I, I hope that that made it worth it. And to hear that she felt that way, um, was, uh, yes, it got a little, got a little misty when I, when I, well, we really appreciate everything you guys are doing. If I can ask just very quickly, they're playing us out, but your favorite place, the, the, the biggest trend you've seen, the favorite place to post things would be what? Uh, I would say tie between Instagram and TikTok. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I like, yeah, yeah, sure. I like sure. for me, for me, here's, here's my tip. When you post something on these social media pages, for the most part, make sure that women like it, because when women like it, they will press the share button, they will like, and they will comment. <laughs> if, you're, if your guy buddies like it, they like text you. And that doesn't help with the video. That doesn't help so with the So if engagement. we get a lot of text yeah. from his friends, we're like, this, yeah. this video's gonna bomb. Yeah, yeah my, my buddies are like, tell me what's really funny. I'm like, you gotta say something on the, the platform. <laughs> yeah, women are just helping us on text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's um, my tip. That's a perfect tip. Kim, Penn, we really appreciate your time today. The Holdernesses, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Also, check this out. Disney's 1928 short cartoon, Steamboat Willie, entered the public domain on Monday. That was January 1st. And the trailer for a new horror comedy film has already dropped. It features Mickey Mouse as the killer. Without copyright protection, the Steamboat Willie version of Mickey can now be used by non-Disney creators in movies, videos, games, memes, and more. It follows last year's horror film that starred Winnie the Pooh after that character entered the public domain two years ago. What is it, 100 years or something you get? Yeah. Well, it was initially 75, and then Disney, Disney largely extended. got it extended yeah. mostly to protect the Mickey Mouse. And, and here we are. Yeah. The Steamboat Willie doesn't really look like it. Not the, no. well, you know, it's only a few it's the, years till, yeah, till the, the current version yeah. shows up. Yeah. Is there too. It, it, it seemed what Willie looks enough that you've got like the creepy looking ears and the nose. Yeah, um, it's definitely recognizable. But. Yeah, it is. And that's the pod for today. Thank you for tuning in halfway through this first week of 2024. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, wherever he is in the world. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, please follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. Let's go, give it to you. How about that? 
That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.